Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 20th of November, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Brian Gerrish, with me in the studio. Well, not with me in the studio, with me by remote link. Uh, we have Alex Thompson bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. And uh, we've also got Mark Anderson from the United States. Uh, well, Alex, you're going to kick off straight away. Uh, we're being spied upon, apparently. No great surprise, I don't think, to a UK column audience. No great surprise either to a former British spy, Brian. But it does somewhat surprise us that there's 15 non-espionage British government departments that compile secret lists which have been ferreted out by The Observer, which these days is the Sunday title of The Guardian, hence the rubric that you'll see here being The Guardian. But if you look carefully, it's The Observer. And it's Anna Pazakerly, an old squeeze of Boris Johnson, no less, but I'm not putting her down. She's a very seri serious journalist who has managed to ferret out that the majority of Whitehall departments are now known to be conducting five-year uh, so social media history searches to see whether people have criticised the government or the prime minister. Uh, this isn't Turkey or Azerbaijan. This is Britain. And the guidance, that beloved British political word meaning orders, um, to the civil servants, the government employee says, you must go and troll Twitter, Facebook, both of them have renamed themselves, but we'll use those names, Instagram and LinkedIn. Uh, a particular uh, example of this was the uh, CBRN, that's chemical uh, we weapons expert Dan Cachetta, who is actually a US citizen who worked in both Republican and Democrat administrations. Um, and he is, he's been banned uh, in earlier this year from speaking at a defense conference because of uh, just exercising his freedom to speak as an individual. We'll see later in the news that that can land you in hot water with the Foreign Office too and get you sanctioned these days. So the piece goes on that it's become clear, and this is because uh, they write this this way because uh, there have been denials from certain government departments that now look like they're on thin ice. It's become clear that the practice of trawling uh, before you get an invitation to speak at any government-hosted conference, and bear in mind this is more and more of the economy and public life, that practice is widespread. It's the norm across government and targeting large numbers of individuals in breach of various, part, uh, various kinds of uh, legislation, uh, which Tessa Gregory mentioned on the screen there, a partner at Lee Day Legal Firm, is, uh, is quoted as, say, as saying is unacceptable. It's likely to have impacted large numbers of individuals and uh, she goes on to to list the number of uh, laws that this may be in breach of. And uh, who are the departments? Well, sorry for the acronyms here, but DEFRA, in old money, that's the Ministry of Agriculture. DCMS, that's the Censorship Department, technical name Department of Culture, Media and Sport. They manage our opinions and whether we get to speak online. And the Department for Business and Trade, after its umpteenth rename and rehaul, uh, so these are three very political departments, even by Whitehall terms, of course, because uh, they're, they're controlling our mind space and, and global Britain. Uh, they say that uh, if a Mandarin wants to uh, vet someone to see whether they have the high honour of speaking to the public on a government platform, they should do a background ch uh, check on Google. Uh, and they even go into detail and say, you know, trawl five to ten pages. That's up to 100 results on Google, Brian. Of course, they're skewed by the algorithm. Go back five years. And at the end of the piece, there's this very odd mention of the guidance having been withdrawn or suspended by the Cabinet Office, even though the only uh, previous mention of, in the piece of guidance was one specific department, the Department for Education, with the very sensitive issue of speaking at nurseries or kindergarten for our foreign audience. So uh, it is uh, very <coughs> concerning indeed that this has gone on. 
Uh, it looks like it's going on in the background. Jacob Rees-Mogg seems to be the man who brought it in as a policy, at least there's a face to, uh, and a name to that policy. He may not have been the very first. As for Mr. Cacheta, well, you know, in, in a nutshell, he is the more independent-minded of the two big-name uh, experts in this extremely political and hyped area of chemical weapons, uh, on which, of course, we can pin anything on a foreign government. The other is Hamish de Breton Gordon, who our long-term viewers, <coughs> long-term viewers will know uh, is extremely aligned with government. Now, this feeds across to the current uh, campaigning in the United States to uh, obtain the nominations of the Democrat and the Republican Party. Uh, on the Republican side, one of the contenders is Nikki Haley from, I believe, South Carolina. Uh, Mark will correct me later if uh, I'm wrong. But here she's giving a, a multi-headed uh, podcast, uh, a kind of tub-thumping uh, pitch on what she would do if she became president through the Republican nomination. And uh, listen to her rage against uh, so foreign, uh, mostly Asian um, uh, tyrannies, as she would call them. Uh, and, and think of this, as you listen, through the mindset of the Whitehall, the London attitude of we must know who is saying what. But what no one is talking about that is, to me, a huge issue that I'll deal with as soon as I get there is social media. So when you look at social media's role in the division of our country, the first thing I'm going to do is go to those social media companies and say, you have to show us your algorithms. I want the country to see the algorithms so that you can see how these companies move. The second thing is they need to verify every single person on their outlet because and I want it by name. Because when what about he, Smug? Does he, does he qualify? I, I've provided them with my government. If, if, <laughs> if Smug is on your driver's license, then, and look, you can put Smug in parentheses, but I want everybody's name because guess what that does? It gets rid of the Iranian bots, the Russian bots, the Chinese bots, and the North Korean bots. Mm. When you look at the misinformation that is causing Americans to do this, who's it coming from? The Iranians and the Russians right now. TikTok, it's, it's the Chinese. TikTok is the Chinese, apparently, and if you even liked someone else's post saying, I don't like government policy in this area, at least one government department, according to the Observer report, says that you are inappropriate to speak. You're being cancelled. And this is from the same government that says it's taking a stand against woke. Uh, Alex, um, thank you very much for that. I think you had one, one image to end off that segment. Yes, uh, Nikki Haley is getting quite lambasted for this. So this meme says, uh, has Nikki Haley with crossed arms looking stern and saying, you're hiding unregistered social media accounts under the floorboards, are you not? There we go. No time now, I think, to ask Mark for his opinion, but I'm sure he'll blend it into his next appearance. Well, I think why not, uh, Mark? Just a very quick one since we've uh, taken it over to the States there. What's your thought? Yeah, this is how tyranny marches behind the mask of a <clears throat> populist Republican. Um, you would expect the Democrats to maybe be this way because they're so defensive of their climate change positions and defensive of their vax positions. But you would expect more of Nikki Haley and the vision of, or the stated vision of the Republican Party. So it just it's not it's another reason not to trust the duopoly, the two parties that seem to operate at times as one. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, I now hesitate because maybe I'm about to say something which means that the UK column is going to be given a black spot as opposed as as regards social media. Maybe we won't be invited to uh, be able to give a talk on a 
government platform. But let's uh, get into detail. I want to take people back to 2013 when UK Column was warning and warning about what we were seeing around David Cameron, who, of course, has now been brought back to power as foreign secretary. Uh, but here we are, new lobbying scandal hits British Parliament. Uh, we're bringing another one, David Cameron, to welcome Liam Fox back from exile. This was another scandal that went on. High court battle over defamation claim could dent Liam Fox's comeback hopes. So all sorts of shenanigans going on in the background, uh, which uh, caused a lot of consternation about the Conservative Party and uh, David Cameron. Liam Fox scandal. David Cameron is dragged into row on eve of damning report into the former Defence Secretary and Adam uh, Werity. And uh, we linked it in with what was going on in the background with Fox and Atlantic Bridge dinners in Washington. You can see the date on that way back in 2011. But uh, we also highlighted in our 2014 report, um, BICOM, which we'll come on to uh, in, in just a minute, but the British Israel Communications Research Centre. And uh, we put up this photo that was widely shown in the press of Liam Fox and Anita Zabludovitz, the wife of Pojo Zabludovitz, uh, who've been donating money to the uh, Conservative Party and indeed to um, Cameron's Tory leadership campaign. So um, here we are in uh, 2013. We tried to warn people um, that things were going on which we didn't think was acceptable. So we had uh, Alexander uh, Tomenko here, uh, part of the offshore group Newcastle, at the time wanted in Russia on fraud charges. He put in a quick 208,500 into the Conservative Party. Uh, we had Mr. Zabludovitz from Finnish Israeli international arms firm. Uh, he put 15K into David Cameron's leadership campaign and 131,805 into the Conservatives in 2010. Uh, plus some very big money into this BICOM organization, the British Israel Communications and Research Group. And uh, they in turn made donations to the Conservatives, but they also donated to Conservative Friends of Israel who themselves put money back into the Conservatives. And we were warning and warning at the time that uh, this to us was not a trustworthy way to run government. And it appeared that external agencies had huge power and influence over David Cameron, if not the Conservative Party itself. But if we focus on to uh, Pauju Zabludovitz, um, here's the headline um, at the Times from The Independent, David Cameron's billionaire backer quizzed in court as part of Scott Young divorce battle. And uh, if we dig into this, we put some labels at the time. One of the ones was that, of course, Cameron had declared that his loyalty with Israel was unshakable, uh, which to us meant that UK took second place. Um, but we also uh, were highlighting again this money coming into the Tories. There was another sum of 800,000. Now, I'm not sure whether that was part of the two million we've had on screen. Uh, or additional to it, uh, but uh, it doesn't really matter. It's big sums of money going into the Tory party. But this was something that we found particularly objectionable. Uh, Anita Zabludovitz, the wife at the time, was hosting a gallery um, with artwork of 
a number of different things, but it included a statue of Jesus Christ with an erection. And we highlighted this to our audience, pointing out that we found this uh, despicable and did this reflect on the Conservative Party itself. But here's BICOM. If you have a look at their uh, website, you can see that, of course, it's heavily focused on the hostages uh, taken in Gaza. Well, OK, that may be fair enough. But we couldn't find any reference to peace or ceasefire when we uh, searched the website. Maybe we missed it, but it didn't come up easily. Uh, this was another headline, and uh, I just found this very interesting. The IDF continues to operate within the uh, Shifa hospital compound. So I'm going to label this as propaganda because what's really taking place is heavy bombing of civilian areas. But according to BICOM, this is merely IDF operating. And if we dig deeper into this website, it gets more interesting because we can see here priorities for the next Labour government being discussed. Why it's any business of BICOM, I don't know. Uh, but look at the headline there. A golden age strengthening the UK-Israel bilateral relationship. And of course, the bulk of the UK public have little idea of the scale of this uh, bilateral relationship or the depth to which it goes in uh, linking Israel and the UK together. So this was the article, A Golden Age, in strengthening that bilateral uh, relationship. And it talks about a recent panel event at the Israeli embassy in London, um, where the ambassador told a prestigious gathering that the contemporary area era represents a golden age of Anglo-Israeli relations. And it was really a love-in between the respective uh, officials on both sides. Uh, but here we can see um, shared security concerns and collaboration. In July 2023, Israel and UK held their inaugural bilateral strategic dialogue in Jerusalem. And of course, many people just completely unaware of this. But let's add this because uh, we have BICOM uh, telling the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office uh, what should be done. So it says that the FCDO could consider the increased impact which would result from get greater collaboration. It could use, for example, its existing relationship to bring the benefits of Israel tech and help expand both countries' humanitarian footprint in the developing world. Well, no um, humanitarian footprint in Gaza, uh, but it also said the FCDO could also deepen its understanding of current Israeli realities and concerns by hosting more visiting Israel Israelis and facilitating custom-built trips for Brits. Bring you in very quickly there, Alex. These trips are all designed to exert power and influence over people and to effectively buy a pro-Israeli line, or am I being unkind? No, that's fair enough, Brian. You know, he who pays the, pays the piper calls the tune, and it's one of the stickiest areas of diplomacy for the Foreign Office and other foreign ministries around the world. If you are in any case, in any instance, facilitating a visit, whose policy uh, and whose perspective is being adopted? At what points are you an official and at what points are you private? What exactly is the Foreign Office facilitating? You can never get to the bottom of it, so foreign ministries are better advised staying out and steering clear of such things. Many of the world's premier foreign ministries do steer clear for that very reason. 
Okay, th thank you for that, Alex. Well, can we trust Israel? Uh, remarkably, it appears that even the BBC is becoming suspicious. Let's have a look at this little video clip. This is Roz Atkins pointing out the holes in Israel's story about the Al-Shifa hospital hiding a Hamas HQ. This IDF animation posted in late October claims to represent a Hamas tunnel system underneath the hospital. But having been inside Al-Shifa since early Wednesday, Israel's yet to produce evidence of the tunnels. It has allowed the BBC and Fox News to film at the hospital, though only locations of Israel's choice. This is what they found. Israel also released its own seven-minute video, which BBC Verify has analysed. A watch, visible in that video, suggests it was filmed a few hours before the BBC arrived. And this IDF video was posted, then deleted, then reposted. This time, without a section referring to an Israeli soldier who'd been held hostage. I don't know when this was used the last time. Also in the video, we see a room with an MRI machine. And if you zoom in, and we get some light over here, what you will be able to see are is military equipment. The BBC was shown the same room. And what we see in the two videos doesn't precisely match. For example, there's one gun in the IDF video, two by the time of the BBC footage. Israel has told BBC Verify this is because more weaponry and terrorist assets were discovered throughout the day. And as always, an AK-47. Israel also says its video is a single shot with no edits. But this appears to be an edit. We don't know the reasons for that edit, nor how significant it is. The IDF, though, says suggestions it's manipulating the media are incorrect. The IDF video also shows military equipment in other locations, though we can't verify how it came to be there. And what we see in this IDF video doesn't equate to Israel's description of al-Shifa as an operational command center for Hamas. The US is using a different phrase, saying al-Shifa was used as a command and control node. That implies a much smaller facility. And as Israel makes the case for this operation, let's consider the Geneva Conventions, the foundations of the rules of war. They state that hospitals can lose their protection if they are used to commit acts harmful to the enemy. Israel believes Hamas has done this in al-Shifa and says that what's been discovered so far is just the start. So we'll just say, can we trust Israel? Apparently the BBC's got some doubts. Um, I've certainly got some doubts. And I think the public should be questioning relations between Israel and the UK government, which are clearly much deeper than the public may realise. Mark, let's bring you in. We'll swap subjects. Um, you were talking about the use of coal. Take us through that. Well, this is part of the larger picture. Good day, gentlemen and listeners and viewers. Um, lately, the media has been awash, wall to wall, with climate alarmism, what you might call that. Daily, there are multiple articles uh, talking about the climate in starker and starker and more bleak terms. Just, it's nonstop. It's a barrage, literally. <clears throat> and this is part of that. Coal use, this is a headline, needs to be slashed seven times faster, we're being told, to meet emissions target analysis fines. And this is uh, based on coverage of COP28, and it mentions the State of Climate Action 2023, that's a report, and it says it paints a sobering picture of the challenges 
that policymakers face as they gear up for COP28, the Climate Change Summit in Dubai. Like much of the discourse on climate action, 2015's Paris Agreement looms large over the analysis. These are subheads. Global efforts to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius are lackluster at best. We're also being told by the World Resources Institute. And we'll move on from there. Uh, This is a little bit more from that article. Efforts to restrict global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius are falling short across the board, we're being told, and major shifts will be required to create meaningful change. According to this new report, again, the State of Climate Action 2023, the UN, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, has previously noted that 1.5 degrees Celsius is viewed as being the upper limit when it comes to avoiding the worst consequences of climate change. We'll move on from there. And this is the State of Climate Action Report itself as reported by the World Resources Institute. I have not, gentlemen, looked at this in depth yet. I'm just getting into it. Next week, I expect to have a little more details from this report, but there's a summation here. The State of Climate Action 2023 provides the world's most comprehensive roadmap, we're told, of how to close the gap in climate change across sectors to limit global warming to this sacred 1.5 degrees Celsius, which always sounds small, right? It sounds so modest and they act like it's huge. It finds that recent progress toward this 1.5 degree aligned target isn't happening at the pace and scale necessary and highlights where action must urgently accelerate this decade to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, scale up carbon removal, and increase climate finance. And we'll move on from there. Now, this is interesting, and it shows kind of a contradiction that's inherent in some of this, an apparent one. COP28 host, United Arab Emirates, has the world's biggest climate-busting oil plans, data indicates, and this is according to our friends at The Guardian, that um, pinnacle of journalistic integrity. And the state of oil company, I'm reading the uh, initial paragraph of the headline, the state oil company of the United Arab Emirates, excuse me, whose CEO will preside over imminent UN climate negotiations, has the largest net zero busting expansion plans of any company in the world, according to new data. So on the one hand, Dubai is hosting this COP28. On the other hand, they're the biggest bandits and outlaws, according to the climate change ideology. And um, this is another thing that suggests, or at least begins to suggest, that maybe all this alarmism is somewhat disingenuous. Now we have the North American liquefied natural gas export capacity. And going back to about 2016 or so, we had very little LNG, liquefied natural gas, being exported. And without getting into detail, you can see that these exports have grown exponentially. And it says here, Um, Why it matters, the U.S. is already the world's largest LNG exporter and developers see a robust market going forward. Of course, all of this is the politically incorrect um, fossil fuels, a form of it, liquid natural gas being exported. Um, And here it says what, what this is about. LNG is helping Europe ditch Russian gas. Of course, we've heard about this before. And advocates see it helping to displace some coal fire generation in Asia, but Paris Agreement goals 
require movement away from all fossil fuels, and LNG critics also point to methane emissions that erode its advantage versus coal. And um, so this captures projects, I'll continue to read, with final investment decisions and already, uh, and already under construction, and more is somewhere on the drawing boards. So the plebeians, the regular people, are being told, get into electric cars, get away from those terrible fossil fuels, but we got to keep those exports going. We got to wean Germany and other parts of Europe off of that uh, LNG that they're getting from Russia. So when it become when it comes to power politics and throwing our weight around in the West, suddenly fossil fuels are rather acceptable. And these these are just headlines I'm going to read. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. Uh, this is just part of the barrage in the upper left. The Guardian headline. The past years were the hottest on record. Yes, we're on track to burn more fossil fuels. So we're being told to cut back, yet we're on track to burn more. And then, of course, everybody's favorite insightful guru, Bill Gates, made waves in Fortune magazine. This is the headline. Bill Gates made waves with his statements on climate change. Here's why he's right and what most people missed. And that article basically says that he was right about vaccines being needed around the world, not just the COVID jab. And now we got to listen to him on climate change, too, because Bill knows all. And then right below him, we have an NBC report, two degrees, comma, 40 feet. Scientists who study Earth's ice say we could be committed to disastrous sea level rises. More alarmism, uh, very serious matters. I'm not saying it's all absolutely untrue but it's the pace and scale of this that we're looking at. And then this last lower left item, the headline, he won a Nobel Prize, but then he started denying climate change. So he's being voted off the proverbial island, you might say. Who is he? We'll move on from there. And this is, uh, we're referring to um, John F. Clauser, who shared the Nobel Prize in physics last year. He had the audacity to, to speak at an event not unlike a UK column conference, something generally similar in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'll just uh, pick this a little bit at a fiery news conference at the Four Seasons Hotel in Baltimore recently. Speakers denounced climate change as a hoax perpetrated by a, by a global, excuse me, by a global cabal, including the UN, the World Economic Forum, and many leaders of the Catholic Church. I haven't heard that one too much. It might have seemed like a fringe event, except for one speaker's credentials, and that's John F. Clauser, C-L-A-U-S-E-R. He shared the Nobel Prize in Physics last year before declaring recently that there is no climate crisis, how dare he say, a claim that contradicts the overwhelming scientific consensus. And I'll mention here very briefly that the overwhelming scientific consensus is what all big media is bowing to, and the New York Times even has something called Climate Forward, a special platform for covering climate issues uh, in which they do not look at any opposing views at all. It's just all ahead with the popular climate consensus. That's all they really take seriously. Now, um, I've got just a little more left. Now we're getting a Christian perspective. This is a ministry in the Midwest in the U.S. called Answers in Genesis, run by Ken Ham, who I met on the reporter trail some years ago. And sounding the alarm on climate alarmists is the headline. And the next slide kind of summates, uh, provides a summation of much of what I'm reporting today and makes it a more complete picture. It's referring to Greta, Greta Thunberg, who's now, of course, the 
teenage idol for climate change and related matters. And uh, Answers in Genesis is mentioning it in this context, the religious language of environmental activists. Greta's exhortation to save the planet is a religious message. It presents the planet as defiled and in need of salvation from humanity's sins against it through their exploitative deforestation, oil drilling, and coal mining. Climate alarmists view the earth as a living organism and see mankind as an infection upon it. And if humans have sinned against the earth, then they must surely repent of their sins and remedy them. In 2019, students at the Union Theological Seminary in New York City even confessed their sins to the plants on earth, to the fauna. The seminary tweeted, today in chapel, we confess to plants. Get that, we confess to plants. And so that that provides a much clearer and cleaner and broader picture of what's going on, that the climate change movement has a secular religious element. And remember, the U.S. Supreme Court not so long ago declared secular humanism as a religion, and that is the underpinning of the climate change movement, but they don't always say that. So this is, uh, it typifies what's this barrage, what's become a huge barrage of the climate change narrative that's just nonstop at this point, a fever pitch, literally. Okay, Mark, thank you very much. And of course, all of this still going on under the surface and the turmoil of the war in Ukraine and what's happening in the Middle East. So it's something for people to concentrate on. Now, if you like what the UK column is doing, then we would ask you to join us, become a subscriber. You can join in the community. Uh, you can also join us for UK Column Extra, which is good. You can help us out by purchasing from the shop. And we'd also like to point out that uh, buying a membership gift voucher is a great way to attract other people to the UK column. So you can certainly help us out by doing that. But of course, at the end of the day, we're putting out the information and facts and uh, details to be shared. And uh, you can take information and share it uh, to help us spread the message. Now, tomorrow, we've got a very uh, poignant and important interview going out. Uh, this is David Scott, who uh, interviewed a lady called Emma a little while ago. Uh, Emma is a very experienced social worker. She tells an incredible story about what happened to her when she tried to speak out to protect children from abuse. Uh, this is really an incredible interview. People need to listen to it and reflect on what it really means about the state of childcare in UK. So that will be uh, going out uh, tomorrow at one o'clock. And uh, I'll just bring this one in. This was sent through to me, but an article from the um, Daily Mail, which was talking about a problem on what board one of the uh, UK's nuclear submarines, the bombers, the ballistic missile submarines, uh, where it started to dive unbeknown to the, to the uh, crew as a result of a failure of the gauge indicating the submarine's depth. This sounds a very small thing, but in fact, it was unbelievably serious because the submarine got to a considerable depth before the fault was realized. And this could have resulted in the loss of the submarine itself. I'm just going to highlight here, it's been well known for a very long time that there are all sorts of problems in the UK submarine fleet, manning shortages, overwork, poor maintenance and low morale. And uh, many people have said that there's an accident waiting to happen 
amongst the submariners. So that's uh, very serious, but it needs to be highlighted if anything's to be done about the situation. Alex, let's uh, bring you back in because uh, you've got some comment to make on letters to the king. Yes, uh, you'll see in this screenshot that the man reading the open letter to the king I'm talking about is Richard Vobes, who has come to a great deal of prominence for his constitutional opinions and interviews. It's not his own letter, and he's quick to point that out <coughs> in his very excellent reading of it. Uh, this will be in the show notes, both the link to the video and the link to the letter itself. It's written by the former policeman uh, Mark Sexton, who most of our longer term viewers are well aware of. Uh, and I'm uh, commending the authors magnificently for what they've done. Uh, here's how the letter begins. Uh, you can see that it's from all of the king's domestic realms and across the Commonwealth seeking urgent intervention. Uh, too much detail to, to go into. It's a, a marvellous and wide-ranging letter, which I think many of us uh, watching will want to sign and send to the palace for ourselves. The purple passage in it, to me, is this eightfold uh, description uh, of uh, what the coronation oath is, the absolute cornerstone of the... Um, uh, of, of the Constitution of the United Kingdom, uh, which is not on the screen at the moment, but the, the text is, Sir, the coronation oath is a moral obligation, a religious obligation, a sworn obligation, a contractual obligation, a statutory obligation, a common law obligation, a customary obligation, and an obligation on all who swear allegiance. So that would be government and uh, military officers and the like. Uh, then they uh, talk about the king needing to intervene, for example, when a criminal government tells the police not to prosecute members of itself, of the government, for criminal offences, the, uh, the power of discretion. It lists 27 people, mostly judicial and police authorities, who, who were written to by Mr Sexton and his associates about COVID jab, jab harms, none of whom responded, and tells the king that it's time uh, to realise that Article 61 of Magna Carta was invoked. Uh, in his uh, late mother's reign. <laughs> so uh, a very comprehensive piece. Uh, it comes out of a previous initiative, which I didn't want to endorse fully, but certainly didn't want to pour cold water on, uh, which was called I Withdraw My Consent, or very similar wording. Uh, in my opinion, we cannot individually withdraw consent, but uh, I'm not pooing at all what Mr Sexton uh, has done with his initiatives, because in this letter, he's very careful to point out uh, that the withdrawal of consent goes through the barons. So if this is all new to you, this excellent letter is a great place to start. If you agree with it, do send it to the palace. We want to see tens of thousands of copies of it go in. Uh, a few more mentions. Uh, a viewer has highlighted to me that there is a, a, a <coughs> premiere going on at Cineworld in Leicester Square, where British film premieres tend to go on uh, for a piece called, a film called Gods of Their Own Religion. I understand it's set in a uh, tyrannic dystopia, which doesn't increasingly doesn't much uh, vary from what we see in real life, but you may find inspiration. Tickets are £30. Big Brother Watch, this will also be in the show notes, uh, has brought out another briefing, this time on the current stage, the second reading in the House of Lords, of the Investigatory Powers Amendment Bill. Well worth getting up to speed on the detail there. Um, petitions, an interesting development. Many of our viewers will know that there was a, a heavily subscribed petition to the government to end our membership of the World Health Organization. Uh, some of those who signed will have done so because of Mark's reporting based on James Roguski's reporting about this. Well, looky here. Uh, the government has now responded, saying, no, we won't. But look, this may be something that can be actionable at law. We do not and will never cede sovereign powers through our partnership. In view of the letter which I just mentioned, this is something that the king can be uh, held to account for uh, and must be required to take action on if they are lying through their teeth about this. 
uh, because we know very well that they are ceding sovereignty through the World Health Organization. Also, read in the show notes <clears throat> this latest pair of blogs, or well, really fully-fledged articles on Substack by the uh, wonderful Eugippius in Germany, uh, an academic with US experience as well. You're getting to the nub of it now. At state level, some of the German states are beginning to inquire into why there was such a policy to inject children with COVID products. And there's a lot of deflecting, hemming and hawing going on and mentions of the German equivalent of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization. So passing the buck, uh, no end. Finally, in this five years ago today, uh, we uploaded this, a briefing I gave uh, to our concerned viewers uh, who gathered in Devon, not far from our uh, Plymouth studio, uh, to hear about the state of defence and security. And it's the widest view I've ever given of the role of British intelligence and where it's gone wrong. So I would personally say it's aged well, not least in relation to Israel, as you commented on earlier, Brian. Okay, Alex, uh, thank you very much for that overview. Um, I'm just going to very quickly bring our audience uh, back in time once again, 2014. What an interesting year that was. Look at the headlines. Israel launches ground incursion in Gaza Strip live updates. And there we can see the explosions. Uh, we also reported this map, which has uh, appeared quite a lot recently, showing how land occupation has changed over time. Uh, we also had this headline revealed the Palestinian children killed by Israeli forces. My goodness, my goodness this sounds very, very familiar, doesn't it? And uh, they even included uh, an infographic here giving the number of ch child deaths in which particular sector of the city and uh, showing the trouble spots areas throughout Israel. Uh, here's another headline from The Guardian, Gaza crisis, Palestinian death toll passes 700 live updates on that. And then we get the censorship, Israel bans radio advert listing the names of children killed in Gaza. We mustn't mention those children, of course, and uh, other people did. And in this particular media outlet, uh, the names of children were listed and uh, broadcast. So very, very sad times that once again, we're back into utter brutality and bloodshed in Gaza. We need to stop the violence and it needs to stop immediately. And we need to pressurize our MPs in order to try and make that reality. But um, bloodshed is flavor, uh, is flavor of the month, um, Alex, because uh, take us into Ukraine. I find this report really objectionable. European Union governments are starting to say, and I have to give credit to the US press, particularly the specialist defense press, they are by far in the lead in reporting this honestly, rather than our own governments uh, and media. Uh, they're starting to admit mainly to the US titles, uh, that Ukraine has been a wonderful test uh, case and uh, um, a laboratory for uh, both weapons and entire combined arms uh, concepts. So Defence One is reporting in its threats rubric, not its Ukraine rubric, threats, because it's part of what the, you know, the, the, the UK-US blob is interested in, in, in other theatres of war, that, quote, UK sees incredible acceleration, and incredible acceleration is direct, directly from James, James Heapy, government minister, in military capabilities. Where from, Brian? From the Ukraine war. Subheader, sub uh, headline, defense companies are testing prototype arms and gear on Eastern European battlefields. So this is a bored HMS Prince of Wales. We're short of time in this segment, but uh, you might want to say, this, say something about this at the end of one of my comments, because I seem to recall that the Prince of Wales was due to visit America on its diplomatic 
uh, pressing the flesh visits uh, rather sooner than it did, but there was a little difficulty with this new um, uh, aircraft carrier. Nevertheless, James Heapy has managed to get to the US aboard HMS Prince of Wales, which put into port in Norfolk, Virginia, the main East Coast uh, US naval port. And there he said that thanks to supporting Ukraine through its various initiatives, Britain has managed to uh, increase its technological capabilities notably. Uh, he also says that Britain is sending observers and closely observing how donated British weapons and gear, which uh, is editorialized by the writer as cutting edge prototypes, uh, as well as standard kit, how they're performing on Ukrainian battlefield. Poland is doing the same, by the way. Hippie says, not what a tragedy that Ukrainians are dying, but he says, you, you learn very quickly what works and what doesn't work. The what works philosophy is the one that was brought in by Tony Blair, but in the old days it was just, can we get the plebs to change their mind? And now it's, uh, how many little Eastern Europeans will die if we try it this way? Uh, it goes on to say that the International Fund for Ukraine has led, has mean, meant that Britain has led efforts to use experimental kit. Some works, some blows up in your face, literally or, or metaphorically, hey ho. Uh, so the fund has, has trialed a lot of extremely new um, systems. It's, it's a, a, a weapons developer's wet dream, this. So has the US, but it's, it's not the focus of the article, although it's a US title. We read that some British companies are using feedback from Ukrainian troops to improve their products in Britain. So really, they're the cannon fodder and the beta testers or British tools which are going to be exported elsewhere or used for, for Britain's own defence in the, in the end. Heapy says that the companies that were patiently working away with the British Army on a five-year horizon were accessing the latest information on Russian capabilities. This, was, this would be the electronic warfare where I know you're sceptical that we, we have anything to match the Russians. Uh, so the, the closing idea here is that the British, is learning, the British military is learning from this that you have to hide. The Ukrainians didn't know how to hide, so they got blown up. But the British have learned from their experience how better to hide uh, in future. Uh, so the lesson for Britain is you don't have to blow lots of money on taxpayers uh, of taxpayers money on everything being exquisite. You just have to be quick and dirty. So uh, cheap weapon systems. I suspect that means for the next ally, the next auxiliary power to use on Britain's behalf, because we don't have the will or the manpower uh, in the army to do that anymore. And over on the continent, European leaders have realized that they failed to meet their pledges to support Slava Ukraini. So Tom Kington, writing for Defence News again in Washington, says that they are blaming their own industry. Uh, the Dutch Defence Minister, Kaiser Ollongren, said, we've done joint procurement, we've signed the contract, so now up to industry to deliver. It has to step up its game. Thierry Breton, uh, notable for his uh, uh, social media Tsar role, says that we have the industrial base in the EU to ramp up production. Uh, he and the Estonians are saying, well, the problem is that exports to third countries are more lucrative, so we may have to commandeer our own manufacturers to order them to supply to Ukraine first, even though uh, there's not so much of a return on that. It's pretty sickening stuff, isn't it, Brian? Um, Alex, it absolutely is. I, I mean, horrific. The scale of the casualties, we still don't know because, of course, they're hiding the Ukrainian casualties, but into the hundreds of thousands, killed, maimed, injured, and what are we doing? We're gloating that we've been able to improve our defence industry off the back of it. It really is obscene, and we need to hold these politicians to account. I'll just say to you, take your time to uh, deliver the rest of your segment, and I'm I'm going to uh, I'll then move ahead to Mark again. So carry on with this Thank report. You. 
I think that this is an important one to feature at full length, so I'm glad of that, because nobody else seems to be standing up for poor Graham Phillips other than Peter Hitchens in the Mail on Sunday. Our viewers will know, and we featured footage of him in the past confronting the parliament, all-party parliamentary group on Ukraine, uh, that Graham Phillips uh, developed a strong interest, a passion really, for the people of eastern Ukraine, Donetsk and adjoining regions, and he still lives there. And uh, the Foreign Office decided to sanction him, not even using primary parliamentary legislation, but statutory instruments, that is secondary legislation, uh, regulations that are just waved under the nose of members of parliament for a couple of days. And so he entitles his report, Liberty Fought Tyranny, in a barely noticed court hearing last week, which of course Mr Hitchens attended. Now, Mr Phillips can't live in Britain practically anymore. Why not? Because he's got sanctions uh, on his bank accounts, on everything. As Mr Hitchens writes it up, the High Court heard, this is not that the sanctions aren't new, but the court cases, the court heard how sanctions mean that Mr Phillips is experiencing hardship. He cannot receive money for work, he cannot pay bills, he cannot pay his mortgage on his London house, or even his council tax, that's his property tax uh, to, for, for his house in Britain, although he lives abroad now. Now, the government has magnanimously said that if you have one of these uh, non-parliamentary uh, law uh, orders slapped on you, uh, you can apply for licenses, gracious permission to be able to, to pay and receive money. But he refuses to get live by government permission. He's standing up for English liberty. He can't even afford a lawyer, so he's got a pro bono uh, barrister, that's a, an a attorney, uh, who happens to be called Mr Hitchens as well, but no relation to Peter Hitchens. And uh, Joshua Hitchens argues that this is an unprecedented power in the statutory instrument with serious implications for free speech. Uh, it was ranged quite unevenly. Joshua Hitchens, uh, on the one hand, with a one just one solicitor, that's a pre-trial lawyer. On the other side, the government has got a huge foreign office team with a distinguished King's Counsel, a top-ranked barrister on one side, uh, uh, leading the team, three others behind her, and half a dozen aides and assistants. And they refused to concede even major points, such as Mr. Phillips's lawyer, called uh, Mr. Hitchens, says, if you're expressing an individual debut, for example, what people do on UK Column or on websites, that's very different from being a propagandist for an official broadcasting station or a pro-government newspaper. Nobody has accused um, uh, Graham Phillips of working for RT, for example. Just, uh, they just generally said, you're working for Russian interests. Uh, we showed the interview with Aidan Aslin briefly, uh, a POW uh, of the Russians, uh, which uh, attracted the ire of the government because Mr. Phillips conducted it uh, in a very discreet and, and gentlemanly way, I would say, and, and checking that Aidan Aslin was willing to give the interview. And of course, the hypocrisy is pointed out by Peter Hitchens, uh, that during the Spanish Civil War and more recent cases, British journalists have covered both sides and been embedded. The BBC, as he points out, has reported on neo-Nazis in Ukraine, who very much do exist. Uh, and so the hypocrisy is off the, the, the charts here. But this isn't just another UK column segment of utter hypocrisy. This could happen to anyone who expresses an opinion. Think about the first segment in, the, in this news. You could have a blacklist put on you. Um, has expressed the wrong view about Ukraine. Can we slap a bank account freeze on him? Uh, <laughs> It's difficult to know what to say increasingly, um, Alex, on this. But on one hand, we've got the slaughter of um, Ukrainians and Russians on the battlefield in Ukraine. We've got the slaughter of people in Israel and Gaza. And uh, on top of it, the su suppression of free speech. This is a dictatorship. It's obvious. And we need to focus on the people who are running it. Mark, let's bring you back in because... Um, uh, where's the future? Well, we're to believe that it's not even going to be humans that make the decision. It's going to be AI. This is the Global Cities Forum that I mentioned last week. 
uh, was going to happen. In fact, last week, last Monday when I was on, was the first day of the three-day annual Pritzker Forum on Global Cities, the premier event on the Global Cities plan. This one, the title, as you alluded to, Brian, was Harnessing AI Tools for Urban Leaders. And it's instructive as a starting point to listen to the governor of Tokyo in a video that we have. There were numerous uh, live stream archive videos, uh, uh, probably a dozen or more. So I'm just scratching the surface. I'll provide more coverage uh, later in the fall and into winter. But let's listen to the Tokyo governor talk about something rather intriguing. Hello, everyone. I'm Koike Yuriko, governor of Tokyo. Thank you for inviting me to take part in this year's forum. The Pritzker Forum on Global Cities continues to play a key role in promoting collaboration between cities and a variety of stakeholders, facilitating discussions aimed at finding solutions to global challenges. Now, on to this year's theme, Cities and AI. A rapidly advancing AI technology has enormous potential in the area of solving urban challenges. Utilizing data taken from airborne laser scanning of the entire city, Tokyo is working to build a digital twin to recreate the city in cyberspace. Using the digital twin in conjunction with AI, to realistically simulate changes in sunlight and wind patterns will, for example, allow us to create comfortable urban spaces. We will also harness the power of AI technology in other areas such as using it to improve our ability to predict disasters and conduct rescue and recovery operations following a disaster. These efforts will contribute to the realization of a sustainable city. I hope that the frank discussions taking place here will lead to a brighter future for all. Thank you very much. It's worth repeating a little bit of what she said for clarity, um, just, just so it comes through. Utilizing data taken from airborne laser scanning of the entire city Tokyo is working to build a digital twin, a digital twin of that huge city to recreate a city in cyberspace. So that's a virtual city. Using this digital twin in conjunction with AI to realistically, eh, really, simulate changes in sunlight and wind patterns. And of course, they want to help people, help the people create comfortable carbon spaces and also use AI to predict disasters uh, toward the realization of sustainable cities. This was also included. And I, and I would imagine that would include predicting very inclement weather. And there was also at the uh, Global Cities event, again, uh, just a brief summary for today, there was a, a panel on local climate action. And another panel talked about AI assisting workers in the workforce without necessarily replacing them, which was rather interesting. And there was a, a slide up there a minute ago that talked about um, AI being used for climate change. This is a, a headline, using AI to estimate future water and electricity demands in major cities in light of global warming. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong, and it might even be accurate for AI to do some of those things. 
but it's always married to and fused with the climate change religious, arguably religious ideology. And then just to summate, um, s- summarize, that is, uh, this report, I've got a couple of my blog posts from thetruthhound.com. Um, this one, I think I mentioned last week, and I'm reiterating it for the context, godless science wonks call for decarbonization in a world of carbon-based life forms. So they want to decarbonize a world that is neck deep in carbon, har- carbon-based life forms. Good luck with that. And then there's been some progression even since then. Now, decarbing the world isn't enough. Another headline from my blog, but some geologists aren't buying into the climate clamor. They're, they're standing astride of this and saying, wait a minute, and I've got a good reason for that. Um, this talks about geologists who don't necessarily share in the climate scare being peddled by the meteorologists, physicists, and others in the scientific community. Geologists understand that even with a 50% rise in CO2 since 1880, today's level of the gas is very low in comparison with most of the geologic record. So you see CO2 may have went up, but it might not be as high as it used to be. So you have to have a very broad context to understand what's going on. They also know that despite a 1.2 degree Celsius rise in the so-called global average temperature since 1880, We actually live in unusually cold times. This is according to the views of Tom Harris, director of the International Climate Science Coalition. Um, Quote, also, starting 175 million years ago, according to Harris, using these secular science timelines, CO2 levels were in a steady decline. Had we not started, this is interesting, had we not started to burn coal, oil, and natural gas, this decline would almost certainly have dropped below the 150 parts per million level at which plants and therefore the all life on earth would die. And in other words, lacking carbon dioxide. The CO2 has been used by corals, crabs, clams, marine plankton, and other calcifying animals with much of it now locked up in limestone rocks. Geologists know that by helping boost CO2, we have saved life on earth with our use of hydrocarbon fuels and cement production. Is he correct about that? I'm not altogether sure. Maybe, maybe not. But these views are not being widely heard, and that's why I'm bringing it out today. So back to you guys. Um, Mark, thank you very much. Somebody in our chat box asked while you were talking, is this a cult we're looking at? And it seems to me it is. And of course, with the deaths that we're seeing worldwide as a result of their activities, we can probably call it a death cult. But let's move on to hunger, because these people, in addition to saving cities and saving the world with AI, um, they're going to save the people who are starving. And of course, the UK is at the forefront of it. We're going to do wonders across the world. And uh, back in September, we had this, the UK to host global summit to turn the dial on world hunger. So this all sounds good and lots of words, uh, but let's have a look at uh, who's in the mix because it's our old friend, Bill and Melinda Gates. The UK will host a global food security summit with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. I don't get a warm feeling out of that but apparently it's going to focus on the best of science and innovation to prevent food insecurity and malnutrition. Nearly a billion people do not have enough to eat, so we're promoting the wars, presumably, to get rid of a few of them. And Here we've got some more comments, so I'm just going to summarise it, but of course the title gives it away. 
It was the Russian decision to withdraw from the Black Sea Grain Initiative last month, uh, a UN plan to ensure food and fertilizers could leave Ukrainian ports. This has reduced glo global grain supply at a critical time for vulnerable people. So basically, the whole problem of people who are starving worldwide is the fault of the Russians. And uh, apparently, this uh, group is going to focus on preventable deaths of children, climate resilient and sustainable food system, which ties in with what Mark's just taken us through, early action to prevent and reduce the impact of humanitarian crises. That's apart from wars, of course, which they're fermenting on a daily basis, and they're going to use science and technology to boost food security. Well, do we believe, believe it? Not particularly, um, but emphasizing once again that Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gets more than one mention. And then we move on to these other interesting funds, the Child Nutrition Fund. Uh, what is all this about? Well, we'll have a look in a minute. But uh, um, first of all, we've got this, a billion people um, worldwide experience severe levels of food insecurity. What are we looking at? We're looking at nudge points that they describe as notes to editors. And this is where the UK government wants media to report their bullet points. No discussion, just follow our nudges, put this information out to the wider uh, population. Uh, here's the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. Um, this is a little nest of hedge fund operatives. Um, we've got some of the names on screen. Chris, uh, Chris Hon, chair of the board, founder member. Uh, Anna Marshall, Ben Goldsmith, uh, Mazrua Siddiqui. And uh, if we just have a look at some of the detail here, we can see that for Chris Horn, we're talking absolutely about hedge fund experience. Uh, let's bring in the other lady. Well, she's got quite a CV, um, but it's not only uh, in connection with uh, funds and strategic investment of policies and 11 billion pound endowment portfolios. Uh, you can also follow connections through um, with a number of uh, committees, uh, but she ends up by saying that she's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. If we try and look at Ben Goldsmith, it becomes more difficult, but what we can find is that he seems to be in and out of power as a government advisor. So is he now working in government or out of government? It's very difficult to say. And uh, if we have a look at Mr. Siddiqui, uh, the headline here says it all, the close confidant of Rishi Sunak who shuns the limelight. Um, so he's apparently been a close friend of Rishi for years and regularly advises the prime minister. So we shouldn't worry. These men have have got the best interests of uh, children at heart, and they're using all of those vast profits in the hedge funds uh, for the greater good of mankind, if we believe this, which I'm not sure we do. Alex, over to you. Yes, a, a US government agency has come up with this list. It's an A to Z, but we're just uh, focusing on some of the S uh, terms, social. Uh, so social justice is defined as a broad term that connotes the practice of allyship and coalition work in order to promote equality, equity, respect, and the assurance of rights within blah, 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 blah. You might be surprised to find out which agency this is. It's the National Security Agency. Uh, Jason Powers, blogging about this, uh, calls them the National Socialists of America, although the term socialism isn't in there. There is certainly a term, uh, a definition of capitalism that knocks it uh, hard. 
And what does he say? Well, originally this came from Citizen Free Press, no relation to American Free Press, for which Mark has written. And that got uh, moved on to Daily Wire, who did more with the PDF. Uh, and they managed to get a soundbite from a Florida congressman about it, Representative Mike Waltz, who says he cannot em- overemphasize how shocking this is that people at the United States' largest and uh, perhaps most important intelligence agency, even more than CIA, arguably, uh, are putting out this this bilge. Uh, he says, I'm a member of the Intelligence Committee in the House, and it is an authentic document. What happens when Woke goes to town? Well, move to uh, Scotland to find out. Uh, we have interviewed in the past Stuart Waiton of the Scottish Union for Education. Their newsletter continues to be on the cutting edge of concern uh, reporting on these um, woke matters. So uh, Mr. Waiton has received a call from a second generation Pakistani uh, Scottish lady. Uh, in fact, I think the mother who came from Pakistan herself, if I recall. Uh, so there is a problem here with a whole class of people a uh, whole class of pupils whose mothers are not very good at English because of the immigration in the area. And uh, this lady is a friend of Waiton's. The four-year-old daughter has come home from nursery or kindergarten, visibly distressed, and says, Mummy, there's a man-woman teaching me now, and I'm upset. Uh, I can see it's a man, but I'm, I'm being ordered to say she and Mrs. This doesn't make any sense. So the mother went to the nursery and was told this new hire was hired as female, and she is female. We will have a word with your girl, and we assure you, mother, that your daughter will be just fine because we're the experts. Uh, And of course, this lady, perhaps informed by Islamic conscience, said that uh, my daughter must trust her instincts and must not be taught to lie. What happens next? The mother goes back to speak to the nursery and is told that because she's talking to other parents, this is considered, not is, there's no law for this, it's just is considered passive voice to say we are making it up. This is considered organising against the staff member. And if you do any more of this talking to other parents, it's akin to harassment, not harassment, but akin to harassment. And she could have the police phoned on her. You must not deal with problems collectively. You are not permitted, says the school, to organise with other parents. What right do they think they have? Uh, and we'll just help you adjust to this new situation. Uh, I don't really, words fail me here. But uh, if you tolerate this, <laughs> you know, what's next? Are your children going to be... Um, uh, ordered to accept that uh, that murder is all right uh, if it's done for the right reasons? Uh, well, I, I think, uh, Alex, it heads towards black is white and anything can go because there will be no truth. This is where this cult is headed. Uh, but uh, do you want to take us out with your, your last two? Yes, uh, just uh, in a very snake-like move, uh, the president of Finland, Sauli Niinistö, has unilaterally approved his nation's accession to the International Health Regulation Amendments. He's done it by presidential decree or executive order. He did it at the beginning of the month. And uh, the the, uh, new blogger, Vít Kopetsky, in the Czech Republic, who I find absolutely brilliant, is reporting on this. Uh, And he hasn't, uh, the the Finns haven't yet published an English translation or even a Swedish one, although Swedish isn't a co-official language there. But the gist of it, which uh, Vít has got out, is that the amendments are technical. Oh, that's a nice one. So they are not within Parliament's competence. It's therefore not necessary to get the amendments uh, to go past uh, Parliament. We'll just get the president to sign off them unilaterally. My and finally is from 1942, from the Daily Mirror, reporting during the uh, depth of the Second World War on what was going on over in Washington. And look at the bold paragraph halfway through here, uh, this report on radio fatigue, which you could call social media fatigue in today's terms, 80 years ago. Uh, as it was, it, that is listening to too much news, merely produced headaches, stomach aches, loss of sleep, 
and widespread wastage of our most our most precious national resource, uh, says the American Sociological Review. And what is that most precious national resource? Resource it is emotional drive. Uh, there we are, and the subheading says too much repetition. So perhaps you're waking up to, you know, even what eighty years ago uh, was known to be the deleterious power uh, of repeating mantras and falsehoods. Okay, um, Alex, thank you very much. Well, a particularly hard uh, UK column news today, but of course we are reporting what is actually happening and people need to be aware of it. We'll just end by saying don't just sit there and take it, stand up and be counted and do something because action conquers fear and that makes a big difference. So we'll say over to you, our audience, and also end by saying thank you so much for all the wonderful emails that we have been receiving, giving us support for our reporting in these particularly challenging times. So thank you for the uh, wonderful emails of support. Thank you also for the emails of uh, considered criticism because we do pay attention to those as well and at the end of the day we do our best to get out news which we think is relevant especially for grown-ups and adults in UK and like the uh, wider legacy media. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us wherever you are in the world and uh, I'll also say for subscribers stay with us. We'll be back in a few minutes for extra time. Alex and uh, Mark, thank you both very much for joining me. Bye-bye.